And welcome to another episode of Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we have Zach Beecham. Now, when you read Beecham, it's spelled a little different than you would imagine, but I do have the real Zach Beecham here, one of the best journalists we have uh, out now over at Vox. How you doing today? Hey, good. How are you doing, Bakari? Are you in your kid's room? Uh, I'm in my living room. Um, I, you can see like etch a sketch thing in the background because yes. my, son, my son is homesick today, and so we're taping this God, while he's na- while he's napping. Uh, the timing we did this in advance. We just really got lucky, as it turns out. Well, because uh, I completely <laughs> understand. My my kids have toys everywhere, and they have their toys everywhere outside of their toy room. So I completely understand that. So look, my show is very unique in that we ask each one of our guests the same first question. Um, which is walk us through the arc of your career. Walk us through each one of your journalistic stops uh, to the work that you're doing now at Vox. Oh, that, that is an interesting question. Um, so, or at least to me anyway, uh, who doesn't like talking about themselves? But uh, I, you know, I, after I finished college, I went to grad school to do a, a master's in international relations. And I thought I was going to go be a professor or a lawyer. And then and the night I was going to take the LSAT, I was like, wait a second, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be a lawyer. I don't know what I want to do, but it's not be a lawyer. Um, and so I, I skipped the test that I was supposed to take. Uh, decided to that I really liked uh, reading blogs and wanted to get into the world of blogging. Got an internship um, with Andrew Sullivan at the back at the Daily Beast, Newsweek, the Daily Beast, when those two things were were the same organization. Uh, and worked there for a year. Then I went to Think Progress, which which also no longer exists. I mean, my career is like a, it's like I'm wrecking organizations, right? Like the divorce between Newsweek and the Daily Beast and Think Progress no longer exists. But I, I was there for a few years uh, where I really, that's sort of really where I honed my craft as a journalist until I got hired at Vox uh, in 2014 to cover foreign policy primarily. But I've always had a mixed interest in foreign and domestic policy and seeing where those things interact. Uh, and over the course of time, um, this is really connected to a longstanding interest in democracy that I've had. So, so it, it turns out that my my energies for the past you know eight years or so have really been focused uh, primarily on the question of anti democratic politics, both in the United States and around the world, uh, where you know why it's happening, why it seems to be happening disproportionately in uh, cropping up in right-wing parties, whereas authoritarianism has been a right and a left phenomenon in the past, uh, and how this seems to be happening in advanced democracies, uh, including the United States, Israel, Hungary, and Israel, including the United States, Israel, Hungary, and India, which is the focus of my forthcoming book, Those Four Countries, uh, The Reactionary Spirit, on this question. Do you find this to be, uh, I mean, you've been doing this for a while, but do you find this work now all of a sudden to be on its ebb? Yeah, to to be the peak, the forefront, the forecenter of people's minds now because of of this kind of rise of of autocrats and fascism throughout the world? Yeah, I you know, it, it it's something that, that, as you say, it ebbs and flows, right? Like there are times when people aren't that concerned about democracy, things feel sort of normal to them. Uh, those times haven't been very recent times. And so for a while, there's been a real sense of concern among people that something is happening that they don't understand. That the world, certainly the world that I grew up in, you know, I was a teenager in the early 2000s, right? So that, that gives you a sense of how old I am. The world I grew up in, Democracy in the United States, at least, and in most advanced democracies, seemed like this stable thing. You know, it's just going to be here forever. It was the end of history moment, 
uh, even after 9-11, no one was like, well, American democracy is done now. There's sort of a reorientation of, of what mattered, but not a, a sense of like epical transformation with political systems where you'd get a kind of Soviet style challenge to the dominance of, of the liberal democratic model. Uh, and that's changed. That's just not the case anymore. Uh, and I think that's created a sense of deep existential insecurity for people who thought of democracy as one of those things they can count on, right, going forward in the world. I mean, democracy is fragile. Isn't that your very layman's analysis? Pretty much more fragile than we think, more fragile than I thought in the past, right? Like there was, I, I've had concerns about this in and out for a long time, but I, I mean, I don't think anybody, you know, let's say in 2014, thought it was going to be bad in the way that it is bad today, right? I don't think anyone really believed the United States could be on the precipice, on the precipice of an authoritarian crisis if Trump wins re-election. All we had to do was listen and read a book though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's the the evidence was there throughout American history, right? I, I like we 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 know that arguably American democracy and the way that we define democracy in any other country began with the Voting Rights Act. Right. And so if, if we think of ourselves as a young democracy rather than an old one, or as I prefer to do it, an old democracy that has always been struggling with an authoritarian movement inside its own polity, an equally powerful authoritarian political tradition that's also been influential throughout American history. Uh, if we think of ourselves in those terms, right, rather than a country that's, you know, the world's oldest democracy, always been that way, always will be that way, then you can start to see the fragility that you were just suggesting. And just talking about so let me ask, let me ask you just a journalistic type question if you don't sure. mind not a journalist yeah, no I please all the time I, I get paid to to, to <laughs> my opinion like i'm in a barbershop or something but you have the global diplomacy beat at vox do your editors ever come to you and say zach let's make this sexy how, or how do you how do you, <laughs> how do you how do you how do you bring a little bit of dump to it you know how do you how do you make people want to say let me turn to the global diplomacy page and see what's happening in hungary today <laughs> well I mean, the Hungary thing, that's interesting, right? Because nobody cared about Hungary when I first started writing about it. it was but just now like, all these conservatives are fucking flying to Hungary and like paying homage. Yeah, no, 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 no. A ton of them, right? They do pilgrimages. Uh, like one one guy, a conservative I know, is a prominent writer named Rod Dreher. Like he moved there, right? He got so into Hungary that he just like up and became a Hungarian resident, which is funny because it's a very anti-immigrant country. And it's a big part of the rule of government. But I guess that kind of immigrant's okay. Um, but look, it, it what you do is you find a point of access, a point of interest for people, right? Something that makes it feel like this thing that's happening, you know, uh, across the country or across the world is really relevant and important to the things they care about in their lives. To take that Hungary example, right? I, you know, I, I was a little early to the Hungary conversation because I saw the parallels between what was going on in that country and the way in which anti-democratic rot was starting to affect the American system. And so being able to point out those parallels and tell our mostly American readership, like, hey, this, this should be a warning for you all. This should raise some concerns about what might happen here. That got helped me attract a lot more attention to writing about like what's going on with uh, you know, the Hungarian business landscape, which seems like so far removed from an ordinary yeah. American's concern. Than you ever would, right? Because uh, you know, I met this guy. It's kind of kind of a wild thing, right? Like we had to hide in his office. There were boxes everywhere. The government had basically extorted him to close his business, and like that helped give a window into how modern authoritarianism works. Like it's much more mafia-like than Hitler-like in its tactics. Um, and but that that people were fascinated by that uh, because it spoke to something about their their own fears 
uh, about their country. Um, so you always have to try to find the the angle, not just of like, okay, abstractly, this is important, but what is it about this specific issue that would make a reader care about it? What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Let's talk about Israel for a minute. Yeah, sure. Uh, for people who see the news but don't understand the news, can you give us a quick primer on how we got here, who the key players are, and what should happen versus what's likely to happen? So we're talking about the war now, right? Right. Because yeah. uh, there's, a, there's a lot going on in, in, in Israel. But speaking, okay, talking about the war. God, um, I mean, do, do we start in 1948? Do we, do we start earlier? Than that? We start on <laughs> okay. October 7th. Let's sure. Talk about, let, let's talk about let's talk about right. Hamas's barbaric attack, and then kind of go to the circumstances surrounding that. Who the players were? One just got bombed recently and is dead, uh, from what I understand. Uh, one sure. of the strategic leaders of of Hamas. Oh, like yeah. And then yeah. let's talk about the who the players are. Just give people a high level. Talk to them like they're fifth graders. Yeah. So. The October 7th attack was something that most people didn't think was possible, right? The idea of Hamas breaking out of Gaza, where Israel had contained this this terrorist group for a long period of time. They had been the de facto rulers of Gaza for nearly a decade at this point. Uh, And Israel thought that it could prevent them from crossing the border, use sort of sophisticated high-tech defenses, rocket interceptors, that sort of thing to prevent serious consequences of of having a terrorist-run state on her border. Uh, this was wrong, as it turns out. It turns out everyone had misunderstood Hamas's intentions and their capabilities and Israel's ability to defend the border. The government was woefully underprepared for the kind of attack that Hamas launched. So on October 7th, they bust through uh, the gates. Right, Gaza is like right on the border of a lot of Israeli communities and, and massacre about 1,200 people, take another 240 or so captive. Um, the Israeli response to that has been overwhelming and, and, and unrelenting violence, right? It's, I mean, when, when Joe Biden called the October 7th attacks 15 9-11s, right, referring to like the proportion of Israel's population relative to the portion of the American population that's affected, he wasn't just speaking in these pure numerical terms, right? He's talking about the massive, massive effect this had on the Israeli psyche. Like the entire, the country, every, every time you talk to an Israeli, they say the country will never be the same after this. And that shock has led to a bombing campaign and a war that's one of the most destructive in terms of sort of how much violence is inflicted per day of any in the modern era. I mean, the devastation in Gaza, as we speak right now, over 20,000 people are dead. Uh, It's unclear how many of them are civilians exactly, but by any reasonable estimate, it's a huge proportion. Something like a third of all buildings in the Gaza Strip are destroyed, uh, I saw by by one estimate. Um, And it is not obvious how much damage the Israeli offensive, including a ground invasion, has done to Hamas's operational capacity. Um, there's some real dispute about that. What they've done temporarily is make it so that there is not a terrorist-run state on their border. The question is how sustainable this is. Once Israel pulls out their troops, will Hamas just go right back to ruling? Is there some kind of post-war settlement where there could be um, the installation of a new Palestinian government? Would it be prepared to deal with uh, the inevitable Hamas insurgency that comes up, and those from other militant groups in the Gaza Strip. None of these, and how many Hamas fighters have really been killed? How many uh, people 
in the sort of higher ranks, not necessarily the top leadership, but the sort of higher middle management ranks have been killed in ways that damage their organizational capacities and their ability to plan attacks or conduct an insurgency down the line. Um, nobody has the answers to those questions. I don't think the Israelis even know. And so we're in a situation where all we can be certain about is that there have been massive, massive, massive casualties uh, and that the future is uh, what that accomplished is at best unclear. Let's ask this question. I, I come from the Hillary Clinton school of thought around this, uh, the calls for ceasefire, but is it that simple? And what does it mean as a practical matter? So Israel has this uh, very, very just objective, right? Of destroying Hamas after what happened on October 7th. I think very few people could say that there isn't a certain level of justice in wanting to pursue that. The question is less whether that objective is morally defensible in an abstract sense than whether it's politically accomplishable through the means that they are using uh, to try to destroy Hamas. That is to say a mass ground invasion and a mass bombing campaign. Uh, and my view is that while Israel had an obligation, not just a right, but an obligation to fight and defend itself, right? the way that they've gone about it is all wrong in a variety of different ways. I don't know if the right, and we can get into the details as to what I mean by that, right? And what specific tactics I'm pointing to. But I I think that just saying, it depends on what you mean when you say ceasefire, right? Because right. that, that's kind of an unnuanced phrase. Uh, there was there was what one might call a ceasefire partway through the conflict where Israel stopped attacking for four days to allow for humanitarian aid to enter in larger numbers and the people of Gaza to recover from the attack. Is that a ceasefire? Most people would say, no, that's a humanitarian pause, which sounds like it's the same thing, but it's not in, in the weird jargon of international politics. Uh, then there's a question of, does do you mean a ceasefire in the sense that the <clears> – <throat> large-scale bombing campaign ends, but Israel still reserves the right to defend itself against Hamas, to assassinate Hamas leaders? Or do you just mean Israel doesn't do anything in Gaza anymore for a long period of time and just simply goes back to defending its own borders, right, and leaves? And then what does the post-war outcome look uh, look like inside Gaza? It's just, it's it's like, there are immense an immense number of variations as to what should be done. What I can, the only thing I can say confidently is that there are some tactics and some strategic approaches that Israel needs to rethink if it wants to have a better outcome than what it's currently getting to. Uh, the question is whether this government is capable of that. It's, it's probably the most irresponsible government and the most dangerous government in Israel's history, which is a really, 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 really bad, bad kind of government to have uh, during a crisis this severe. We hear a lot about a two-state solution. I'm a proponent and advocate of a two-state solution often. In fact, I I've talked about on the show uh, back when uh, President Clinton got really, really close to to having a, a two state solution. Um, uh, but the Palestinian Authority walked away. Uh, will we actually ever see one? Is that still a viable solution or even a desirable one at this time, given the current political comment, both in the region and in the U.S.? So um, you'll hear a lot in the Washington discourse about the death of the two state solution. And I think it's one of those things that people say because they want to sound like smart and cutting edge and clever, but it's just not supported by the evidence. Like what another way of putting it is that there's a real confusion that the fact that there's no prospects for a negotiated settlement, you know, in the coming weeks or months, like that's there's not nobody happen. to negotiate with. Yeah, it's not I remind people this all the time. Like who who is the Israeli government going to negotiate with? Hamas fundamentally doesn't believe Israel shall exist. 
Right. So they would negotiate with the Palestinian Authority and make a deal with the PA, which I think that they they could do if the government, the Israeli government were sincerely interested in that. They're they're not this current government. They have zero interest in it. Um, but you know, if you come to an agreement with the PA, then what do you do about Gaza? To your point, Hamas is not going to sign on to a peace agreement. They've used violence in the past to try to disrupt negotiations. Uh, it, it, like, there's just no chance that any of these really thorny problems can be resolved, especially given the ongoing fighting. But the problem is there's no good alternative to two states, right? Either you have Israel keeps all the land and denies Palestinian rights, in which case you get apartheid, which is intolerable uh, to a lot of Israelis in the international community, or you get, well, worse, ethnic cleansing is also a possibility there, or you get a one-state solution where Israel ceases to exist and you have either a Palestinian state or some kind of binational state where everybody nominally gets equal rights, but in reality, that's more likely to lead to some kind of civil violence or civil war, uh, has its own serious practical problems, and Israel would never agree to it because the Israeli residents would believe like they have to share a state with Hamas. Are you kidding me? Right, it's sort of their point of view. They they really believe in a Jewish state uh, and the importance of preserving a Jewish state. So that's not going to happen. So. If the two, if the various different one state outcomes are unthinkable, we're we're back to two states, right? That's and that's that's where we're always going to be until there's some fundamental sea change in the way that Israelis and Palestinians understand themselves. And the question to me, the interesting one, is not is the two state solution dead? It's not, and it's it's probably unkillable in a certain sense. Uh, the question is what you do to make it more likely or prevent one of the one state outcomes from emerging temporarily, which is kind of what exists right now. Uh, how, do, how do you roll that back and create a world in which real negotiations for a just settlement are possible? So, yeah, I would say it's like a, it's a complex answer, but it's there's not going to be a two state solution anytime soon. However, the two state solution is not dead and there's there are ways to imagine it coming back where there to be some changes domestically. It's the only real plausible solution. That's right. Yeah. That that isn't a total moral nightmare. A couple more questions. If if sure. President Biden called you this afternoon and asked you, what should I be doing, Zach? And how should I talk about this issue on the campaign trail in 2024? What do you tell him? And just not just Israel and, and Gaza, but just the the rise of these kind of what used to be fringe elements of governing um, fascism, this kind of global rise we're seeing of things that the United States is supposed to stand against. Yeah. What, what I would say is you need to bring your policy in line with, with your rhetoric about democracy, right? You need to take this opportunity and the immense amount of goodwill that Joe Biden has bought in Israel. It's really immense. Right? He's more popular than the prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, by, by a long shot in Israel right no, now. Going to support. First of all, I agree. <laughs> yeah. Also not difficult. No, it's, that's true. There are, there are rocks <laughs> that are more, po- more popular than Netanyahu right now. Uh, but it's uh, like Biden has this opportunity to try to position himself on the the right side of the Israeli political dispute and to sort of like really speak to the better angels of Israelis by by telling them like look this war this is horrible Hamas's aggression is indefensible you know where I stand on all of this 
But at the same time, right, the only way that we're really going to get out of this is some kind of peace agreement. And you can't just bomb your way to doing that. You can't kill the more people you kill. If you kill, continue some of the indiscriminate tactics they've been using in Gaza, the less likely it is that Palestinians are going to want to make peace with you, the more likely you are to be doomed to this kind of violence in the future. So we need to talk about what you can do to make it seem like the Palestinians have a viable pathway to a decent life. That they can be negotiating partners for you. And you need to deal with the extremism in your midst, just like we're dealing with the extremism in our midst. Right. The the Netanyahu and the, the people who back him, especially these extremists uh in the religious Zionism and Jewish power parties, um, Itamal Ben Gavia and uh, as, as Israelis would pronounce that, and Bezalel Smotrich. Um I mean they're they're real radicals, and Netanyahu depends on them for his support because he's worried about getting thrown in jail. Right. It's it's not it's really there are a lot of similarities between what's going on right now in the United States and Israel, given the the evident corruption of the leadership of the major right wing parties on both sides. And it's all part of a united global struggle, not really in the way that Biden sometimes says it between like the United States and China for the world, but really inside of democracies. Right. The US and India are the most important battlefronts, but Israel is a really important one. Hungary is an important how did you one. Leave out, well, you said democracy, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was about to say, how did you leave out China? But you did say that D word. Yeah, it's not it China China is much less influential in this regard than people think, right? So is Russia. Right. This is really well, Russia, I, th- I get in trouble. I got in trouble with this on scene, right. but I've always referred to Russia as like just a barren ice field with a nuclear weapon and like a gas station. It's not yeah, Russia's a lot weaker than people. I don't know if I'd go quite that far. There's a lot to like about, you know, Russian society, Russian culture, the Russian people. I mean, I know I'm, yeah, just, talking yeah, about, yeah. I'm just talking about their global power and influence. Yeah, they're no, 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 no. Their military has been severely weakened by the Ukraine war. Russia, they, they've got nukes, but the, that's just about what they've got, as you say, and oil fields, right? Oil, yeah. oil fields and nukes. Um, but Russia's, they, they just, their information capacities, like their ability to affect outcomes and elections outside of their borders, way weaker than a lot of people think, right? It's just that there's some I mean, I think a lot of people assume that they would be able to just take Ukraine pretty quickly and then yeah. the USSR and that just has not happened. Not even close, right? And there are, there are some pretty profound structural reasons as to why that's the case in the nature of the current Russian government, right? Like Putin, he seems like this really impressive strong man, but he's arranged his government in a way that's made it um, susceptible to like a lot of classic blunders that dictators tend to make. Uh, and the Ukraine war being the big one that he's done. And so if the Russians and the Chinese aren't the big problem, the problem is, the. I really think if you're concerned about democracy right, in its future, the concern is people like Donald Trump. It's people like Narendra Modi in India. It's people like Benjamin Netanyahu, like Viktor Orban, like the leaders of Germany's AFD party, um, you know, like uh, J.R. Bolsonaro, who was recently ousted from power in Brazil. But, um, yeah, what about the president of Argentina? Millet is a really weird case. I mean, do we even know uh, what that is? Do we know, like, can we put our hands around what type of president he will be? I mean, he's a he's a weirdo libertarian, right? He's like, if you look at the way that he talks and acts, he is almost quite literally like the love child of Milton Friedman and a WWE wrestler, right? That's 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 like his thing, right? It's it's very weird. It's very odd. Uh, I think a lot of people in Argentina were, for good reason, dissatisfied with what had been going on in their their country. I mean, they had like forty percent of unemployment and uh, what, like one hundred fifty percent inflation. Right? Those numbers are approximate, like, but that's that's what I recall them being prior to his election. So I can see why you were really upset and turned to someone who said my radical policies will fix things. Uh, I don't know if he will emerge. Like, he doesn't. 
come from the super anti-democratic world, the the kind of authoritarian right populism. Um, it's a different kind of right populism. Could it turn into authoritarianism? Yes, there are authoritarian libertarianisms. But he's he's weirder and importantly different in certain respects than the sort of rest of the crop of of, of what we think as the far right vanguard. How do you see this issue that we're talking about of, of global diplomacy, et cetera, playing out in a 2024 election? For example, I hear often hear that Muslim voters may sit this election out, putting states like Michigan and Minnesota into jeopardy. What are you hearing and thinking in that regard? So that that's a tough one, right? Um, this is kind of unprecedented. So it's very difficult to say how this is going to affect the way that Arab and Muslim voters in particular vote. Uh, because on the one hand, I, I can see why they're very angry about Biden's approach to the Gaza war and why that would be showing up in surveys and suggesting they don't want to vote for him. On the other hand, the alternative is Donald Trump, right? Is is a guy who's vowing a stricter Muslim ban if he comes back, right? And is that really something that Arab and, and, and to be clear, Trump has been a much more, when he was president, was a much more blank check supporter of Israel than Biden has been, right? You can imagine the, con the conduct of this war has been, I think, in a lot of ways, bad on Israel's part, you can imagine it being a lot worse. Um, I, I say that full well, knowing the amount of devastation that's happened in Gaza. It can be worse than it currently is. And were Trump president, my guess is it likely would have been. That's a controversial claim in the policy analysis world. I, I just want to say that's just my my view of, of how it would work out. Um, and I just I don't know if this high level of opposition to Biden among Arab and Muslim voters will be able to survive a campaign of, of Donald Trump being Donald Trump and saying such horrible things about them all the time. And you know, there are other there are, there are all sorts of ways, right, that that the issue, the conflict could play into the election. So I think if Biden had been more hostile towards Israel, he'd be doing better among Arab and Muslims voters, but he probably would have lost um voters in other areas. Right, where there's sort of there's pretty strong majority support in the U.S. for Israel. I mean, I I, I look at the, I look at I people talk about the waning support of Israel within the Democratic Party, and I just laugh. I just I just don't see that. I mean, I, some of the fringes are extremely loud. I think you have some younger progressives who have varying views, but I don't find find there to be much daylight in the relationship. Uh, I think I think that there's just. Um, I think the people who are most likely to vote, right, which is to say older uh, yeah. older voters are the ones who still are more likely to have stronger pro-Israel views. And so the costs, the electoral costs, I think Biden was in a tough position. I don't think he was likely to win over a lot of moderate voters on this issue one way or another, but he will alienate elements of the Democratic Party no matter what he did. So I, I just I think the president was in a no-win situation politically and has done what he did primarily based on um, – Based on his own deep-seated policy views, Biden's been a long-standing supporter of Israel for a very long time, right? And this, this to me, reflects the president's judgment calls on policy and his own instincts, the policy, whether you like it or not, right? It, it is what really just what Biden thinks. That's what we're seeing. So most important question, how can people follow your reporting and keep up with you on social media? Give us a snippet on this book that I hear you're writing. Yeah. Uh, so you can follow me uh, at... On, on Twitter slash X for however long that still exists at, at Zach Beecham, Z-A-C-K-B-E-A-U-C-H-A-M-P. I have the same handle on threads. Uh, you can look at my page uh, on Vox. 
uh, so just Google by name uh, and, and you'll be able to find it. Uh, but yes, I have this book coming out. It's coming out in July, right around the time of the Republican National Convention. It's called The Reactionary Spirit. Uh, and it focuses on analyzing the root causes of this current democratic crisis that's going on around the world, on, on tracing it back to an internal tension in democracy that's sort of inevitable and persistent, surrounding ideas of hierarchy and inequality and exclusion, combating the sort of egalitarian, the idea of democracy as something that's universal, as, as being founded in an ideal of equality. And that that has run into tension with existing hierarchies in ways that have generated backlash against democracy again and again throughout time and space. And we're living through an era for a variety of reasons in which that tension has become particularly acute. And sort of, I use Israel, the United States, Hungary, and India as four case studies to, to really analyze this. And the book's coming out this summer. Pre-orders are available at Amazon.com right now. So feel free to go over if you're interested, you like what I had to say, go check it out. Zach Beecham, thank you for joining Bukhari Sales Podcast, and thank you for writing a very, very smart book. Go back and play with your Etch-a-Sketch now. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> thank you, brother. Have a good day. <laughs> you too.